Here's the topic for this evening. If the Bible is so clear, why are there so many different interpretations? The Bible is what we say it is, Christians believe it is, then why are there such an array of theologies and traditions? I referenced that objection in the morning sermon, and since it is such an important and common objection, I want to take an entire message this evening to address this problem and give you several ways of thinking about it, not simply here's the answer to this problem, but a whole constellation of things to think about and perspectives to consider that will help us, I believe, help us understand this phenomenon. The problem starts with an undeniable fact. There are many different theologies, beliefs, and interpretations that all claim to be rooted in the Bible. I have behind me a lot of books here. This is as close as I get to sort of uh, props and show and tell and visual aid, bringing some of my friends, and some of these are not so much my friends, but uh, here's a book. I did a long couple of blog entries about it, if you're interested in reading more. It was not my favorite book, but it, it was a very provocative book called The Bible Made Impossible, Why Biblicism is Not a Truly Evangelical Reading of Scripture by Christian Smith, who is now at Notre Dame. He's a very well-known, well-respected Christian sociologist. He coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism. I don't know if you ever, if you ever read any of this literature. He, he does well at coining phrases. And Another phrase that he coins in this book is uh, PIP, pervasive interpretive pluralism. And that means just what it sounds like, pervasive, that is widespread, lots of them, interpretive, interpretations, pluralism. There are many different interpretations of biblical texts. And so he's arguing in a lot of different arguments in here, and some I would agree with, and others I wouldn't, but he, he's arguing that this really is the death knell to what we have often considered an evangelical reading of Scripture, and not at all coincidentally, uh, his book right before this was on how to move from an evangelical to a Catholic in 95 easy steps. So, he's moved over to Catholicism, and that is not at all a surprise because these issues are intimately related with Protestant and Catholic differences. So, what are we to make of this pervasive interpretive pluralism? Just to give you some indications of the problem. So, this right here, as you can see, it's, it's about as big as the Bible. This is a commentary on 1 Corinthians. So, this is big. It is uh, it's one of the best ones. It's 1,400 pages. And just to take really one of the most, if not the most obscure passage in all of the New Testament from 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul references baptisms for the dead, this scholar writes on this particular verse, it would detain us unduly to enumerate the many which 
interpretations which scarcely deserve thought, but we shall cite ten which are on the whole unconvincing, together with a further three which are either widespread or, in the last case, one that is highly probable. So then he has quite a long excursus, four or five pages, on just the ten that are bad but aren't as bad as the other ones, and then three that are possible and one that is likely. So big commentary, lots of verses. He's going to go through and say, well, here's a view on this verse and this verse and this verse. Or another example, in this book that I referenced from Christian Smith, and we'll come back to this later, he uh, catalogs 17 different sermonic readings of John 4 and the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. And 17 different, he says, common ways in which he's heard this text explained or preached. We'll come back to that. Also, you have books like this. These are all out of my library. Baptism, three views. The Days of Genesis, three views. Women in Ministry, two views. At least there's only two. Uh, Perspective on Christian Worship, five views. Five views on the law and the gospel. Five views on Christian spirituality and sanctification. And four views on miraculous gifts. There are probably, uh, I counted there are over 30 such books on the market, and they are helpful to a degree. I have a number of them. They put in one place a number of different views, and then those writers respond to each other, and it gives you a convenient form to weigh different options. Or, perhaps most well-known, people will often mention the number of denominations. This is a uh, the standard book, this one's about 15 years old, so I know there's newer editions, but Handbook of Denominations in the United States, and it has just 200 of the denominations. These would be the most significant, largest ones. And for example, this is in the category of Baptist. American Baptist Association, American Baptist Churches USA, Baptist Bible Fellowship, Baptist General Conference, Baptist Missionary Association, Bethel Ministerial Association, Central Baptist, Conservative Baptist, Duck River and Kindred Associations of Baptists, Free Will Baptist, General Association of Regular Baptists, just regular Baptists, General Baptist, General Conference of the Evangelical Baptists, Landmark Baptist, National Baptist Convention, okay, I'm on the ends. So you can see there are 27 different kinds of Baptists in this book. So what are we to make of this phenomenon? In many ways, this is one of the most common defeaters to a Christian worldview in our present day. You may find yourself trying hard to explain your beliefs, state your reasons for something. You may look at history and theology and exegesis of a certain passage And while you are laboring hard to convince someone, the person you are talking with may simply lean back in their chair and fold their arms, and whether they say it sophisticatedly or not so much, simply say, well, that's your interpretation. You just went, look, I studied, I read four books on this, and I gave you this reason, this reason, this reason. They say, well, that's just your interpretation. And aren't there hundreds of interpretations? The argument can be quite crushing, and you feel like, well, who really can know what is true? What can we really say about 
the truth. If there are so many interpretations, then are we left to just say, no one really can know. We really are just the blind men and the elephant, and we all have some ideas about some things, but we just sort of throw up our hands. What do we do with this problem of pervasive interpretive pluralism? Well, I want to give you, as I said, a constellation of responses and approaches to help deal with this problem. I have 10 responses. Number one, Number one, we need a proper understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Now, you notice that language again. The whole counsel of God with things necessary for God's glory for our salvation, faith, and life. That's what the Scripture is telling us. And it tells us everything we need to know. It is completely sufficient for that. The Bible, however, does not tell us everything we might want to know about everything. It does not give us explicit instructions on all of life's dilemmas. Now, on most of life's dilemmas, many of them. You will be able to take biblical principles. You will be able to take biblical narrative and, and imply and, and find implications and applications. But sometimes we have to admit that the disagreements Christians may have concern matters that the Bible does not mean to address. And so the, the interpretive pluralism can look bigger than it is if we were to be more disciplined and say, well, does the Bible really mean to answer this question? For example, there's a lot, a lot of books about the Bible diet. Here's, what, here's the maker's diet. Or well-known pastor in California has been preaching a series on here's how he lost his weight. Here's this diet. Does, does the Bible mean to tell us how to lose weight? Does the Bible mean to give a definitive opinion on the federal budget? They might say, well, here's some principles and such. But does it mean to give a definitive word on that? There was a book I saw, The Biblical Guide to Alternative Medicine. It's going to tell you what herbs you can take. And is the Bible meaning to communicate those things to us? Now, the Bible has implications for lots of things and principles that can be applied to all of life, but we shouldn't think that everything we want to know is expressly set down in Scripture. I'll give you an example. As I'm preparing, and Alan and I are preparing to go to our synod meeting in a week or so, there's a long paper, and I'm sure there'll be a long discussion. This paper is about uh, Israel-Palestinian relationships and the, the territorial disputes, and I feel like are we as a synod of the Reformed Church in America equipped to make a pronouncement upon this extraordinarily complex issue? Now, if we want to deal with, well, what is the theology of Israel, what does the Bible teach about? Yes, the Bible says something about that, but I wouldn't want, I might have my own opinion, I may make a prudential judgment based upon other sort of geopolitical realities, but I think that's where Christians sometimes need to step back and say, you know what, this, this matter will finally not be solved just by a Bible verse. We have these principles, and then we're going to have to bring in some other facts and some other history and allow 
that there can be disagreement. It doesn't mean that one side might not be better than the other, but it means that we're not claiming that Scripture decides this by Scripture alone. So we need a proper understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture and what the Bible means to speak on. Second, we need a proper understanding of the clarity of Scripture. We talked about this this morning, that not everything in the Bible is equally plain. The Reformers were always clear about this definition of clarity. They never said everything in the Bible can be understood immediately by anyone. And what they said is, if you use ordinary means to study it, to think about it, to pray about it, that the message of the gospel, salvation, faith, and life will be sufficiently clear to everyone who has ears to hear and eyes to see. But there are some things that will be hard to understand. We must recognize that when you get into certain books and certain passages, you will say, that is confusing. I'm not quite sure how to render that grammatically or what sense to make of this genitive absolute or whether this is a participle of cause or a participle of means and all these sort of grammatical things, you're going to have some questions. And our doctrine of the clarity of Scripture allows for that. Here's a verse to, to remember. I pointed it out before. 2 Peter 3.16, Peter, the Apostle Peter, inspired by God, says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. Thank you, Peter. It's true. Glad you said it. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Now, notice that verse. So, on the one hand, Peter says, look, some of Paul's stuff is really tricky, and it's, it's pretty difficult, and it's kind of hard, and I read through them, and I was a little confused at first. There's some hard things in Paul's letters, but then he doesn't say, well, just all we have are interpretations. He says, no, they're hard, which the ignorant and unstable twist. So, on the one hand, they're hard. On the other hand, but I know that what these people are doing with their interpretation is wrong. So he has no problem saying, yes, this is difficult, and no problem saying, and that's a wrong interpretation of this difficult passage. So we need a proper understanding of the clarity of Scripture. Number three, we need a proper understanding of sola scriptura. This is where we as Protestants have often been rather thoughtless, we have said, well, I have no creed but the Bible, except that that statement itself is a creed. I have no creed but the Bible. No, we ought to interpret Scripture along with the ancient creeds and confessions, along with the traditions of the church, along with the reformers and the church fathers. We ought to put the burden of proof on anyone who would overturn the historic consensus of the church. So th the church can be wrong about things for a long time, but if you're going to say, I think that Augustine got this wrong and Aquinas got this wrong and Calvin got this wrong and Luther got this wrong and Machen got this wrong, and you're going to say, everyone until people were as smart as us got this wrong. Possible. It's possible. But we want to read with all of church history in view, and especially where there has been a consensus of the church on things like the two natures of Christ and the Trinity. So we don't want to assign ourselves to complete interpretive 
chaos. People who say, I'm going to come to the Bible just like I've, I've never looked at anything in my whole life, and I'm just going to come to it fresh. It's not, not possible. That, that's naive, and it's not even wise. Why would we want to do that? What we want to do is, I want to come to the Scriptures, and I want to be as objective and open-minded as possible, but I want to learn from all the saints who have gone before. I want to learn from churches. I want to learn from creeds and councils. And one of the, the, the foolish things we do as modern people, and, and oftentimes especially as American modern people, is we think we have nothing to learn from anyone who has gone before us. So, sola scriptura is not the same as solo. Solo scriptura means I just, just me and my Bible. I'm not going to look at anything else. That's not what we mean. Sola scriptura means that the Bible is the ultimate and final authority. In the end, everything, traditions, historical creeds, formulas, catechisms, everything must be tested against the supreme authority of the Bible. But that doesn't mean that we throw out all of history. No, the, the, the history of the church is like the banks of a river, and it, it should be sort of guiding where the safe passage for this stream, because the Holy Spirit has been working in the church and among His people for all of these years. So we want to consider it carefully. Fourth, this big constellation of ideas here. Not, you may not say, well, that, that doesn't completely answer the problem, but, but I think altogether it gives us a way of thinking about this. So number four, we need a proper understanding of the history of the church itself, a proper understanding of the history of the church. And this goes back to something that I said this morning is you will often find people say, as soon as, you, as soon as you want to be clear about something, as soon as you seem certain about a passage of Scripture, they'll say, aha, well, what, and what about slavery? And what about the witch trials? And what about the crusades? And what about geocentric view of the, the solar system? And what about uh, a flat earth? Didn't, weren't you Christians all really sure of that? There's a number of ways to respond to that argument. One is simply to point out, so are you saying that if at some point in history our predecessors, predecessors were wrong about something, then we can't be right about anything? That, I mean, that, that's the assumption, though it's never stated that way. They were wrong about something, you can't be right about anything. And the argument is self-defeating. Because as soon as you say, well, di didn't, didn't they think that uh, the earth was flat? You want to say, well, do you, th do you think the Bible teaches that the earth is flat? And they'll probably say, no. But they used to think that. Okay, they used to think that. And now you're telling me you know that the Bible teaches something else. So, so you've come to a conclusion about what the Bible says and doesn't say. And that's, that's all we're trying to indicate is we've come to a conclusion about the, what the Bible does or doesn't say. The, the other angle here is that we really have been so sloppy with our understanding of church history and allowed a lot of half-truths and mistruths to go completely unchallenged. Now look, the, the church has been around for 2,000 years, so in 2,000 years, you're going to find lots of examples of Christians being dumb. You have any in your life? I have some in my life. 
you're going to find examples of Christians believing things that were wrong. But we need to actually think through these claims. Just to take one of those examples, and there have been whole books written on all of those examples, but just one, you know, the, the flat earth. Often you hear the story told that Columbus went and he wanted to sail around the world and they didn't want to give him ships because they said, look, the world is flat and you're going to go there and you're going to fall off the edge. And they were ignorant churchmen who believed that because it said that the sun rise and the sun set or that, or that the four corners of the earth, that therefore the world was flat and they told Columbus, look. And it took Columbus to go and to realize against the better wishes of the church that no, in fact, the world is round and all of you Christians have been flat earthers. But almost every part of that supposed history is wrong. The Venerable Bede, that's a good name. I don't know if his parents named him Venerable, but that'd be a lot of pressure. But he's known to us as the Venerable Bede. He lived in the seventh century, and he taught that the world was round, as did another man, Bishop Virgilius of Salzburg from the eighth century, Hildegard of Bingham from the twelfth century, Thomas Aquinas from the thirteenth century, all taught that the earth was round. They're all saints in the Catholic Church. Every educated person in Columbus's day knew the earth was round. One writer, Jeffrey Burton Russell, argues that during the first fifteen centuries of the Christian era, the quote nearly unanimous scholarly opinion pronounced the earth spherical, and by the fifteenth century, all doubt had disappeared. The most popular medieval textbook on astronomy written in the 13th century was entitled Sphere. Generations before Columbus, Cardinal Pierre Dely, Chancellor of the University of Paris, wrote, Although there are mountains and valleys on the earth for which it is not perfectly round, it approximates very nearly to roundness. So, those who challenged Columbus did not do so on their belief that the earth was flat, but because they thought Columbus had grossly underestimated the circumference of the earth, which in fact he had, which is why he ended up in the Caribbean and called them Indians. So that's just one example, not to say that the church has never been boneheaded about things, but to say before we just throw out these vast assertions, we ought to really think and look more carefully into the claims. Recall also that on almost any of these science questions, the scientific community was also wrong about things for a long time. Somebody says, well, the church has been wrong about things. And science? Yes, they've. It, did they always believe in a, in a heliocentric view of the solar system? Did they understand properly where the bubonic plague came from? Did they, under, did, did they not postulate spontaneous generation that some beings could just kind of, whoo, I mean, where did these rats come from? They just, whoo, they just came up. So, so science, too, has a history of lots and lots of bad ideas. And we also must remember, even where the church has been wrong, say, for example, some Southern Presbyterians defending slavery. We must remember it wasn't as if they were wrong for centuries after centuries and then finally changed their mind. But in fact, in the Civil War, there was quite a debate over slavery and in particular the passage of slaves from Africa. 
All this to say that we must know our history better, and when you get those sort of defeater kind of objections, not to be frightened of admitting that Christians have made mistakes, but, but also to say, would you like to, maybe we should read, maybe we should look into that. History is rarely as simple as people think and as one-sided. Here's a fifth response to this problem of pervasive interpretive pluralism. Fifth, we must not exaggerate our differences. We must not exaggerate our differences. Certainly some groups of professing Christians disagree on so much that you can hardly imagine that they're Christian. But if you were to look at Christians and churches and denominations that all believe the same thing about the Bible. They all believe the Bible's perfect and inerrant. They all believe in the sufficiency, clarity, authority, necessity of Scripture. You were to take those group of Christians who all affirm that about the Bible, and then you were to take among those Christians those who actually read their Bible, study it, go to church, take classes. They've actually taken the effort to understand what's in their Bible. And then take those Christians, the ones who are serious about their commitment to Christ. So you take the ones who believe this about the Bible, who know something about the Bible, have staked their lives on the Bible, and you are going to find a whole lot more that unites those believers than what separates them. I bet out of those 27 Baptist denominations, more than 20 of them would be evangelical denominations that believe the same thing about the Trinity and about the two natures of Christ and original sin and heaven and hell and the atonement and the resurrection and faith and repentance and a dozen of the most other essential things. So there are real differences, but we must not exaggerate them. And we also must remember when you think, well, why? It's easy to say all these denominations. Just, they're all doing this different thing. There's just a thousand different varieties of Christians. Well, you have to remember also, not all of these denominations are, first of all, because of theological disagreements. Now, sometimes there's schism or heresy, but there are all sorts of streams that are, are just are based on ethnicity. You may say, well, that's bad, but you have to understand, people come here, and they come from different countries, and maybe they don't know the language, and so they, they form a denomination around an, an ethnic pocket or people group for a time. They have to do with different rates of Americanization, different regions of the country. It wasn't always that you could just communicate really easily and just zip around the country and text people. And sometimes there are simply different traditions worth perpetuating. So, you, maybe you've thought before, what, okay, you've never really thought this, but I think you should think this. What's the difference between Presbyterians and Reformed? I know, they wake up every morning. What is the difference between them? Uh, not much. Presbyterians and Reformed, if you find churches with those labels, they, they at least ostensibly believe almost the identical things. But Presbyterians have the Westminster Confession of Faith and Westminster Standards, and Reformed people typically have the three standards of unity, which are the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, and Canons of Dort. And the theology is almost identical. If you were to line up all the things that they affirm, they almost they affirm everything the same. But it simply come out of different traditions and out of different parts of Europe, so that the Reformed churches 
came out of the continent and out of the lowlands of Belgium and the Netherlands and Germany. And that was a whole Reformation thing going on. And then there was a Reformation thing going on in England, in England and with the Scottish and the English and the Westminster Assembly. And so the, the, you can look and say, well, look, you've got all these different denominations. But it doesn't have much to do with differences of theology as it does just different traditions where they came from. And you may have certain people say, you know what, there is something in this tradition with the people who are our heroes, the people we've read, the confessions we belong to, that this is worth perpetuating. It's not necessarily indicative of any kind of schism or real major disagreement. I think it can be shown that even with so many different denominations, there is a mere Christianity, as C.S. Lewis said, a core deposit of apostolic orthodoxy that has been taught and defended and promoted for over 2,000 years. And as you can tell, if you've been at this church for any length of time, I think the best way to defend that mere orthodoxy is not to water everything down to the mere orthodoxy, but for Baptists to be Baptists and Reformed to be Reformed and Presbyterians to be Presbyterians and, and point out, yes, there are some differences in, in how we see some things, and yet we love each other across those differences, and we have some different traditions, and we think they're important, and yet what we have in common among those evangelical groups is far more than what we would not have together. So that's fifth. Sixth, these, uh, I think they're shorter, but maybe I'm just saying that. Sixth, we should recognize that this pervasive interpretive pluralism has always been a problem and always will be a problem for everyone everywhere. This is maybe the most important point. This pervasive interpretive pluralism has always been a problem and always will be a problem for everyone everywhere. This is important because it exposes that what we are dealing with is a problem of being human, not a problem with the Scriptures. Human beings disagree on, let me see, everything. Everything. Always have. Always will. We should understand this. Across the street from a university, academic inquiry, discipline, any of you who know that world say, hey, why, why do you have theological journals? Because here's everything that everyone's arguing about. And you would probably say in your discipline, well, yes, well, there are certain things that are a given, and that's what we would say also about the faith. But wherever there are humans endeavoring to understand, there are going to be differences. So I have a book on my shelf called Vindicating Lincoln. They may thought, well, who, why does Lincoln need to have I mean, Doesn't everyone like Lincoln? Well, no, a lot of people don't like Abraham Lincoln both on the right and the left, and they say, well, he was the father of big government, or he was really a racist, or he didn't really care about the slave. Or he... So there's a whole book. Like, well, there's a lot of smart people that got PhDs, and they're arguing about, is Lincoln good or not? I'll never forget my wise physics teacher in high school. He said, I want you to remember this, and I did. He said, don't trust when you hear on the news them reporting something about science. He's, he said, what happens is there's something in a journal somewhere that makes some study about something, probably sugar is really bad or something, and it goes on 60 minutes, and it freaks my wife out, and then I can't have joy in my life. And 
so you, 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 have, and, and you have these studies, and what gets reported is there was a study in a journal, sugar's bad, sugar's bad, here, all here. And, and what, what happens in science is there's a study, and then someone else looks at it, investigates, and there's another study, and maybe confirms or denies, and they look at their research, and journals go back and forth, and that's how things develop. And the, the teacher was very wise in saying, look, this is, there's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of back and forth. And when you get these pronouncements, one study says this, therefore let it be so. You ought to be skeptical. This pervasive interpretive pluralism is present in every academic field, in every area of human inquiry, in every family. Talk to your family. You think, remember that story? And they remember it differently. Remember what that was about? So if pervasive interpretive pluralism means we cannot know anything about the Bible, then it all means you cannot know anything about anything, about anything. It's not a problem with the Bible. It is a fact of human knowledge. And let me just say also, just to try to ex explain with where I think Catholics overstate their case, is often you will have Catholic friends who will say, look, this is, this is your problem, Protestants. This is why you need a magisterium. This is why you need a pope. This is why you need somebody, because you all can't agree on anything. You Protestants are so divided. You need someone to state, here's the proper interpretation. The only problem with that is, is when they state, here's the proper interpretation, they don't agree on what that proper interpretation is saying. So I'll give you an example. I think I put this in here. This is from a uh, professor of Catholic studies at the University of Tulsa. He's writing about, this sentence won't make sense to any of us, but it just gives you an idea. He said, the affirmations to be negated in Pius IX's 1864 syllabus became later affirmations to be affirmed in Leo XIII's famous 1892 encyclical Rerum Novarum, positive statements on Catholic teaching on modern social and political issues. That doesn't mean anything to you because we don't study Pius IX or Leo XIII or any of their encyclicals. In fact, it sounds like an encyclopedia and that doesn't sound very exciting. But all that to say... When you, if you were to read Catholic literature, you would find just as much disagreement. Except I often find it's one step removed from disagreement over Scripture. It's disagreement over encyclicals and papal declarations. And so there is no escaping that there will be different interpretations of human knowledge. And... If you were to understand all that takes place in the Catholic Church, there is just as much diversity there as there is among all the branches of Protestantism. So the Catholic Church says birth control's wrong. How many Catholics don't use birth control and believe what their church teaches? No, there's a wide... So you got these Catholics over here who say, we like President Obama's health care. We got the bishops over here saying, we're going to sue the administration. They don't agree on things. Here's the seventh. We must distinguish between meaning and significance. I want to go back to this book. Remember I mentioned that uh, Christian Smith says, here are 17 different sermons he's heard on John 4, the woman at the well. I'll just give you some of them and, and see if you think these are actually contradictory interpretations. We said, here's some of the sermons he's heard about Jesus with the woman at the well. 
Christians need to get out of their comfort zones in order to preach the gospel to those who are culturally different or in foreign lands. One person drinks of the living water and accepts Jesus into their heart, they will never thirst again for the waters of the world. Jesus disrupts our settled personal lives by encountering us with penetrating and troubling questions that lead us to repent. We know that Jesus was God because of the miracles He performed and the knowledge He knew of people's lives. Jesus knows everything we have ever done, and yet He can still love us and forgive us. Now, it goes on and on with 17 of these, and I, I think all but one or two are perfectly legitimate applications of the text. So you list all those, and you can think, wow, Christians don't agree on John 4. Well, no, they, they, they agree on what happens in John 4, what Jesus says in John 4, but there's a lot of different ways to apply the significance so the difference between what the text means and the significance for your life, we must understand the difference that there may be the same three preachers, you know, different preachers, and they all agree, here's what happens in John 4, here's what it means, and yet they're going to preach three different sermons that come at it with, well, this angle of evangelism or worship or repentance, all of which could be legitimate. Eighth, Christians come to different conclusions on Scripture for several reasons. For several reasons. Not all of which are good. So once you just throw it out there, well, everyone's got interpretations. And if you don't think about it too much, you think, well, they must all be really pretty reasonable. Well, that's not always the case. Christians can disagree because we have not looked hard enough at the text we could disagree because we are too bound to our own tradition or we're too eager to please our friends. Or maybe we disagree with each other because the effects of sin have distorted our interpretive abilities. And sometimes, this will sound revolutionary, Christians disagree with one another because one is right and the other is wrong. Now, th this is a challenge the challenge in our day is not so much to prove that this point is right or wrong. It's to have the courage to think that you could be right and someone else could be wrong. So I want to be honest enough to say I think Mormons are wrong. I think dispensationalists get some things wrong. Not by any means are those equal errors. And they would say I have some things wrong. And the easy thing is to say, well, we're all, we all just got some things wrong and some things right and whatever. The hard thing, but the responsible thing is to say, let's have the courage then to make our case from Scripture. Instead of pretending that no one could possibly be right or wrong, look, all of you think you are right about some things. None of you live your life thinking, oh, I don't know about it. I don't know anything about anything. I'm not right. I just about guarantee you poll everyone in this church. Everyone would fall into one of these two categories. I can't believe anybody voted for George W. Bush. Or I can't believe Obama is our president. <laughs> I bet you could get 98% of our people fall in one of those two categories. And you, th and you can smile because <laughs> that's funny, and I know people are stupid. <laughs> and I know people are wrong. You, you, we all know things. You, you, you think you know things about your kids. You think you know things about your field. You think you know things about your job. We, we live life believing that we're right about some things. And so we ought to have the courage in the area of 
faith in the Bible to say the same. Now we want to be humble. We want to say, I'm willing to listen to reason and be convinced otherwise. But no one except for philosophers and madmen can live their life not thinking that they're actually right about some things. In fact, I would argue that this pervasive interpretive pluralism in Christianity is actually a sign that Christianity is intellectually serious, that it respects reason and logic, and that it is based on a fixed authority. If you don't have those things, then you don't even have this problem. Who cares if two things contradict each other? Who cares what you think? No, but it's because Christianity is a religion that values the mind and reason. And Christianity is a religion that takes intellectual pursuit seriously and is a faith that understands that doctrine matters. It's because of that that the problem even presents itself. The great challenge of our day is not only to show that we believe what is right, but to defend our very right to be right. Nine, we must remember that at some point, everyone wants to affirm that Scripture says something clearly, whether others disagree or not. At some point, everyone wants to affirm that Scripture says something clearly, whether others disagree or not. I'll give you some examples. In this book that I've held up by Christian Smith, where he's saying, look, we have all these interpretive problems, and how is, is the Bible really that clear? Yet, he gets to this book, some of you have read this book, by Ron Sider, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, and he says, quote, it makes a clear biblical case about poverty and hunger. Similarly, Christian Smith talks about the commandments to be generous givers. He said these are, quote, pervasive, clear, straightforward, obvious, and simple. Okay? So, at some point, everyone wants to say, well, well, yeah, but obviously that's clear. Obviously that's clear in the Scriptures. Brian McLaren of emergent fame or infamy would often criticize evangelical Christians for being so sure about the Bible and pinning down everything in our systematic theologies and thinking that we had God figured out. And then he wrote a book called The Secret Message of Jesus where he discovered what the secret message was and it was about the kingdom. And he argued that his view of the kingdom was right because, quote, it accounts for more of the details included in the text than a bad reading. Well, these are just examples of people who on the one hand will be very quick to say, well, all we have are interpretations, and how can you really be sure? And you shouldn't, you're, you're a little, you're too dogmatic about the Bible's not really clear on election. The Bible's not clear on, on heaven and hell. The Bible's not clear on sexuality. The Bible's not clear on all this. Oh, yeah, but the Bible's very clear about Poverty is very clear about this, it's very clear about that. Now, yes, the Bible is perfectly reasonable to say the Bible is clearer about that issue than that issue. I have no problem with that. The problem is when we don't have the intellectual honesty to say that's what we're doing and arguing. Instead, when people present issues that we're not interested in or we don't want to deal with, we say, no, it's just an interpretation. And then when we come to the things we're really passionate about, we say, well, this is obvious, clear, pervasive, straightforward, and simple. What is a problem is when people don't even argue their points. Instead, they push beliefs aside 
saying there are a million interpretations and theories, so let's not get worked up over this. But then when they come to the doctrines that are important to them, they say, well, this is obviously clear. Everyone at some point wants to affirm that Scripture says something. Last, we should have the same confidence in the Bible that Jesus had. I want you to turn to one text as we finish, Matthew chapter 19. There was quite a controversy among the rabbis and among the Jews in Jesus' day surrounding the issue of divorce, and there had developed two very different schools of thought, one more conservative, one more liberal on the grounds for divorce. So there's a lot of discussion, and so when they come to Jesus in Matthew 19 and ask Him this question, they are asking Him to weigh in on some pervasive interpretive pluralism. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So they're lobbying him. They're giving him a question that they knew was controversial. There were many different interpretations of the Scripture on this issue. So what does Jesus do? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So Jesus responds to the pervasive interpretive pluralism in his day by quoting from Scripture, claiming to understand Scripture, and arguing that Scripture supports a certain view, namely in this case, that you are allowed to divorce because of the hardness of your hearts, and that what God has joined together ought not to be separated. Jesus cut through the pervasive interpretive pluralism and believed that despite the array of interpretations that were available, that Scripture still spoke to the issue, could be applied to the issue, and had a meaning that was relevant to the issue. So even with all of that, Jesus did not say, well, it's just, I'll, just, I'll give you my take on it. I'll give you my take. Now, I can see the wheels turning, and some of you may say, well, that's great. I, I will allow that that happened because he's Jesus. Okay, Jesus can cut through the interpretive pluralism. Jesus can make a definitive statement, and I will give that to you and say, if that's what you think, then why not listen to Jesus? Why not go to Jesus? If you're willing to give him that credence, why not actually spend time to see what this man says. Here, here's the bottom line. This question of pervasive interpretive pluralism can be for some people a very real, genuine intellectual quandary, and I'm sympathetic to it and tried to give you some reasons and ways to think about it. But we also have to admit that for many people, it is the first resort for intellectual laziness. Not for all, but for some. 
Well, that's your interpretation. In other words, time out, game over, don't have to talk anymore, I don't need to think anything more about what you're saying. Uh, that's an interpretation, and I know there's other things out there, and I'm not even going to think any more about it. It is an intellectual laziness, and my challenge, I believe God's challenge, be to read the book, to read the book. Do not, do not give up because smart people with PhDs do not agree. Do not give up because you've heard there are so many interpretations. Do not give up because you don't want to read a, a commentary on 1 Corinthians this thick. Read it. Listen to Jesus. Study it. Believe that God may not explain to you everything you wanted to know. You may come to some verses and say, I think this issue could go this way or this way. But he will tell you what you need to know, what is necessary, what is sufficient. He will make it clear to you. Are we using this, this issue of interpretive pluralism as a first resort to our intellectual laziness and our unwillingness to actually search the Scriptures to see if these things are so? God honors the humble heart. He honors the broken heart. And I believe he honors those who earnestly and submissively come to his word and say, God, you have something you want to teach me, and I want to learn it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It does impart light and wisdom to the simple. There are some questions we will not have answered because maybe they're not the questions that you mean to answer. There are some things that we will all get wrong and we'll find out in heaven about it. But until that time, Lord, may we not be the sort of people that step away from your word in the midst of this reality, but let us be the people who rush to your word Say, Lord, we, we, we want to learn. We want you to teach us. If we're wrong, we want to be corrected. If we're right, we want to be confirmed, and we want to be courageous in this. It's your word. You speak to us, and you know how to speak clearly. So help us to listen and help us to give you the time to speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.